that's why I like Trader Joe's. There's only two kinds of peanut butter. So I'm not standing there being like, God, there's so many peanut butters. What if I pick the wrong peanut butter? You know, Trader Joe's made that choice for me. So just buy both. um, Exactly. I do. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making this crazy biz and how they're almost, almost famous. I'm your host, Dana Acker. Today's guest is the co-creator of the podcast, Why Do You Know That? And has starred in Dog Walkers, College Humor Originals, Hollywood Darlings, and written for My Music, The Powerpuff Girls, and more. It's the hilarious and delightful Steve Slaga. Delightful. Yeah. I like that. I'll take it. I figure like when I write these intros, I'm like, I got to throw in a couple adjectives. One thing you did miss is I was producer's assistant on all of the DVD special features of Saw 5. So I just do want to put that in the universe as well. I'm so sorry. So people know. How, how were the DVD yeah. specials? How was, how was that experience for you? What's weird is I didn't even work on any of that. But like I worked at the company that made the DVD specials when that DVD came out. So my name was just included. But I had nothing to do with it. Uh, so I kind of feel like a fraud. Interesting. And of all the Saw movies, is, is Five now kind of your favorite because of that? No. No, I don't. Yeah, no. I'd say my favorite is still One. <laughs> I still like Saw One the best. But Five is probably closely second because I, you know, because I'm attached to the special features. Yeah, you're part of. It's something like Jigsaw's Game or, you know, <laughs> behind the scenes of Jigsaw's Game or something like that. Oh, my gosh. Well, we right before we were talking briefly, you're also as a talented comedian, actor, and writer. Steve does great tram tours at Universal. I do. And he's doing Horror Nights. And I think we've discussed before, we both kind of love Halloween. Yes. Yeah. What do you think it is about Halloween and if you when you are doing the tram tours is, are those the better ones is that or are they all just like where do they fall well the Halloween tram tours that's the terror tram and that's just kind of like a shuttle service they just take you to the back lot and then you get off the tram and like walk around and people jump out at you so for me I like doing that because I don't really have to try like you just sit in a in a chair and press buttons so that like clips play like hey we're going to the purge party come on down and then i just sit there and eat candy whereas like real tours happen during the day it's hot out you're out there for like an hour so i prefer the one with less work mm-hmm. yeah that sounds that sounds nice just pushing buttons and, and just probably have to exactly. go like be be careful yeah. What what's nice is for that because it's Halloween and it's you know spooky, scary, and there's like violence going on in the park. We can be a little bit more, I guess, aggressive. So I'm I'm very mean to people, <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, for you it's just kind of like they think this is a funny bit. I don't I don't like these humans that are on this territory. <laughs> for sure, my goal is to like if I can. If I can get somebody, if I can, if I can burn somebody in a way where other people on the tram are laughing at them, then it's a success. (laughs) If somebody's being annoying and I can like not only like chop them down, but also get everybody to pile on, that's a success. That's the dream. Yeah. Growing up, like what made you take an interest in acting and comedy and writing? Like- Was it when you were a child or was it later? Yeah, I'd say it was when I was a child. I think 
I, I'm a middle child and I have an older brother and a younger sister, which I maintain is the worst kind of middle child you can be, at least in the early 90s when, you know, we were forcing gender norms upon children. But uh, so you have an older brother who becomes the alpha male and demands all of the attention and everything has to be his way. And like my parents would, you know, kind of whatever. And then a little sister is like the baby girl. So I always felt like my mom was kind of like forced to deal with my brother a little bit more because he was the alpha. He was the older one. And my dad kind of always seemed to, you know, in my mind, it's probably completely false. But in my mind, mom favored older brother, dad favored younger sister. So I was like, well, I got to get attention somehow. Guess I'll be loud and learn to be funny. And it worked. Look at me now. You would have preferred a older sister, younger brother. That's the ideal. I think so. Yeah. Yes. If I could, if I could have had a, if I, if I could go back and change anything, I'd be a, I'd be an only child. Uh, And if not that older sister, younger brother, I think I could be wrong. I'm probably just in my mind, figuring out why my, my situation's the worst. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know how much of it is like in my mind and like memories that I've kind of rewritten over the years that are like, mom always took Dan to hockey and dad always said Liz was his little girl. So nobody loved me. And I'm over here doing a vaudeville act for 30 minutes to nobody. There are family videos, like home movies, VHS tapes. There's one with my brother's name on it and there's one with my sister's name on it and there's not one with my name on it but if you watch my brother and sister it's very clear why it's because i will not get out of the camera's view on either of their videos so it's like my sister standing there singing proud to be an american for the camera and then i jump in to like throw bagels or something because i just i need the attention there's a camera on so i think there's no steve home movie because they didn't they didn't want to encourage it anymore yes you were you were the jigsaw of the family you don't need a movie called uh, you know with the jigsaw on it you're gonna be in the franchise (laughs) exactly i'll find a way i'll find a way to play my game yes exactly and if and if they can learn a lesson along the way all the better yeah you always love those morality tales oh yes he really is a trickster jigsaw (laughs) he's a he's a real goofball at what point did you kind of go like oh there's a career in this because i feel like that's kind of like a light bulb moment like everyone's like oh i'm acting i'm you know trying to be funny and then suddenly you go like i'm actually gonna move to los angeles i'm going to pursue this i think for the longest time it was just something that i thought was cool that other people did that i that was like not for me and it probably wasn't until like halfway through high school i got involved in like theater and doing productions and stuff and I went to college. I went to Western Michigan University for a year pursuing a communications major. So I made it all the way to like freshman year of college before I was like, hey, maybe I should figure out if there's something I want to do with my life and what that is. And and then I I transferred to Columbia College in Chicago before uh, to, to, to take writing classes and get my degree in TV writing and producing. Thank you, Columbia College Chicago. And they had a semester in LA program 
And so all through that, it was always kind of like, if there was a safe way to do it, if there was like a, a way to do it that was safe and part of some sort of program, it, it felt more legitimate to me. It never felt like I just like packed all my bags and moved to LA. I don't know if I ever would have had it in me to do that. I kind of like just inched towards it. Like Chicago, I can go do things in Chicago. That's a city. Oh, there's a program in Los Angeles. I can do that for a month. Well, I'm in Los Angeles. Maybe I'll stay for this internship. Oh, the internship ended. I'll see how I feel at the end of the year. So I kind of gave myself an out for like the first 10 years of being in Los Angeles of just like, we'll see how it is next year. But you know, now I guess I'm here. Now I guess I'm a citizen. I'm full time. Yeah. This is it. Well, Los Angeles for life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I never really uh I never really grew up dreaming of or planning to move to Los Angeles. It was never really it was never really uh I don't think it was ever I think I was just too fearful. Like, no, you have to get a real job. You have to go to a an office or a factory or a school and you know, do do regular work. Mm-hmm. I feel like so many people have kind of a similar thing where they go to college and they get their degree or start their major in communication or broadcast journalism. It's like these like yes. weird, like they're similar. It's just, it's, yeah. it's like somebody's like, you know, like it sounds like your whole thing has been like dipping your feet in and slowly walking towards the deep end. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just like, yeah, always. I mean, I guess it's also kind of like a, a, I guess a self-confidence kind of thing too, of like, that's for other people. That's, you know, that's for beautiful, talented movie stars move to Los Angeles. I'm just some kid. So yeah, it was always definitely, yeah. Inching, putting my toes in the water. First job, I interned for the Weinstein company. Whatever happened to those guys? Uh, You know, I'm not sure. I left in 2007 and i'm pretty sure everything i don't know if anything's changed since then uh i haven't really i you know i don't really follow up on on those guys (laughs) i I was taking the classes through college and just trying so hard to just find an internship just to kind of like stay out here a little bit longer because even then um and my parents were always very supportive they were supportive of going to school in chicago they were supportive of of moving to la but for some reason i always just felt like kind of like tethered back to michigan a little bit like no 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 this is just temporary this is just you know if it works if if you get successful you can stay but like don't plan on it just very very carefully even things like groundlings and ucb i was very hesitant to kind of get involved in in terms of performing and stuff like that so yeah you started doing ucb in the groundlings and comedy like had you done improv and like sketch before or was it very much kind of like i know these are the theaters to go to to do comedy so when i was in chicago when i was going to school i was a acting minor and the only reason was because you could the Columbia has a, a deal with Second City. So you're it, one of the requirements for the acting minor is an improv class and it's taught. It is a Second City improv class. It's oh. it's taught. It's their curriculum. It's their faculty. They just come to Columbia and teach the class. And I loved that class. My teacher was Lily Francis from Second City, Chicago. I haven't spoken to her since the last day of my class of improv in Chicago in forever ago but I asked her I said I'm doing this semester in LA program and I really loved improv 
um, is there like what what would you recommend? And the only thing she knew about in Los Angeles was Groundlings and Second City Hollywood. And she kind of said, I would, you know, look into Groundlings, try Groundlings. And I did. And the first attempt was disastrous. And I hated it, hated myself, didn't think I was good at improv, left Groundlings and went to UCB, then bounced back and forth between UCB and Groundlings. And uh, yeah, eventually, I guess I got the confidence that I, I can write and I can perform. And I'm as good as uh, people that uh, past Steve would have been like, no, that's for them. But, you know, through through sketch and improv, I definitely found not just like a comedic voice, but confidence in myself that I am worthy to stay in Los Angeles and that I'm funny. Absolutely. Now, over the years, as you've gained more confidence, everything, have you for yourself uh, created a definition of success? That definition has evolved since I moved to Los Angeles. You know, it's, it's always like, I think when I first moved here, it was a very small definite. It's kind of been like um, like a bell curve. Like it was a very small definition of success of just like, I just want to, I just want to have a job in the industry and I'll be happy. I'll just be happy to be paying my rent living out here. And then as I got into sketch and improv and, and learned all these different skills to, you know, create my own comedy videos and, and work with other people and seeing people around me get successful and book TV shows and get staffed on TV shows and sell movies. I was like, I can do that. That's, that's success. Success is I'm going to own my own house and, and sell my own TV show. Just like these people did. That's, that's what's for me. That's success. I'm not successful until that. And then as you get older and more realistic and kind of understand how the industry works, it's not always a meritocracy. The expectations and the definition of success has kind of changed for me again. And now I'm, you know, in my later 30s, completely aged out of any demographic that anybody cares about. And my definition for success now is just kind of more, it's less financial, it's less industry. And it's just, am I happy? Like, do I like what I'm, do I wake up in the morning and I like what I'm doing and I, I like what I, what, what I get to go do. And so long as I feel like, I'm living a life that is worth living. I kind of try to keep the success in industry and like ex hoping to graduate from almost, almost famous to almost famous. I kind of try to keep that separate. I think uh, it's easy to get tripped up in that world and, and the amount of like sleepless nights I've had because other people are more successful than me or I didn't get this thing. It's just eventually I just decided that doesn't serve me. That's not getting hung up on that's not going to get me where I want to be. So I might as well just live my life. Yeah. Just relieving myself of the, of the stress and pressure of what I should be doing or what other people are doing around me. So yeah, my definition of success went from nothing to famous house in the Hills back down to nothing. Well, I feel like you've done the like, what we all eventually do and everyone probably does in life where you have to shift from success being external things to internal things. Yes. Where are you at when it comes to, would you love to be rich and famous or are you kind of like, you know what? I've, I've seen a different side of it. Like where, where do you fall on that spectrum? I think 
anybody who says they have no desire or curiosity to be rich and famous, I don't believe them. I think all of us, especially if we're in Los Angeles, like that's I think that's always going to be in the back of our mind is like, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to write a a script. I'm not going to have a writing sample and be like, wow, I hope this is good enough that I can be the lowest on the totem pole in a writer's room somewhere. Like, of course, my dreams can be like, I'm going to sell this. My name's going to be on it. I'm going to buy a I'm good. You know, like it's always going to be there, even though you know, I actively try to ignore it. I think there's always going to be a sense of like, oh, that's the dream. That's the goal. But I think ultimately it's more just about if I can write something that I'm proud of and other people like it and uh, and I could just get anybody to hire me because they like what I'm doing, like just focusing on those those moments and not worrying about the grand scheme of where's this going to go and just more. Yeah. I try to kind of like, I try to keep it more internal and focus on the things I'm in control of. I can't control who's going to, you know, come see my show. I can't control who's going to watch a video I make, but I can control the content of those shows and those videos. So, and I can control how often I'm productive. So anytime I'm feeling that way of, you know, is the, am I, am I doing enough? Am I, Am I on the right path? Am I, uh, am I ever going to get discovered? Quote unquote. I just kind of try to recalibrate and and remember, like, okay, well, sitting here wondering and and obsessing about these things I can't control isn't going to do anything. But I can always pull on my computer. I can always work on something. I can always find a way to be constructive with it and creative with it, as opposed to getting too caught up in whether or not I'm, it's ever going to come some way. It's very easy to, to make a video or write a show and then get very in your head about, are people going to like it? Is this the right thing to do? Is this going to be successful? Or am I going to do my show and a week later, nobody's going to remember. And it's just, you know, another, another postcard for me to put on the fridge. I think what makes people almost confused and fearful for the line of work we've decided to pursue is the uncertainty yes is is the like oh wow like i'm working and your brain goes you're gonna work forever and then all of a sudden you're not working and your brain goes Mm -hmm. looks like you're never gonna work again like how have you kind of ridden those waves like what do you what do you do when you're kind of i guess on a high and you're working a lot and being productive and then on those moments when there's a lull like what do you yeah what do you find is helpful I, i relate to that so much of just like getting a breadcrumb of some sort of like career aspect and just being like, well, this will lead to the biggest cake. It has to, it goes up. It's a trajectory. This small job will lead to all the things. I think part of it might just be eventually you get tired of the ups and downs. So you stop kind of, you like hedge your expectations a little bit more for just self-preservation. Like, you know, you book a commercial or somebody asks you to be in this really cool showcase and you get so excited about oh this this is going to add to my resume people are going to see it it's going to do it's going to lead me to a b and c and you have enough of those where eventually it just kind of hits you like maybe maybe it's more mentally healthy for me instead of continually thinking every time this is going to lead to all the things and then it kind of takes you back to zero maybe just focus on you know being in the moment and, and being happy with where I am. Um, and always, for me, it's always control. It's always making sure that I'm in control of 
focusing on the, I shouldn't say being in control. I'm never in control of anything ever. Uh, but focusing on the small things I can control. There's so little you can control or you have kind of a say over. And one thing I really like is I'm, you know, we're in a similar boat where, you know, comedians, but we act and write. And the fact, I feel like writing is one of those things where I'm surprised whenever I meet an actor that doesn't write. I just go, there's so much dead time. There's yeah. so much time where you're not asked to act. You're not auditioning. You're not doing anything. And I'm like, thank God writing is one of those. It's one of the only activities you can do whenever you want. Like, it's just like, absolutely. Like I'm shocked when people are like, no, nah, I'm not much a writer. I'm like, well, you're literate. So just grab your laptop and start clacking away because it is the, to me, it's one of my saving graces of sanity where it's like, Oh God, Same. I don't know what's going on. Just write, just write something. Even if you write something that's not necessarily going to be, you, you might end up finishing whatever you might, you know, maybe, maybe you're feeling useless in, in some avenue of the world. And so you're just like, you know what, I'm going to hunker down and I'm going to write a screenplay. And maybe you finish the screenplay and you're just like, well, that was a piece of trash and it's not good. I don't like it. But also like you got feelings out. You got you got emotions out like it, it, even if you're writing a, a, a sci-fi robot epic or something like that. It's it's still to me still a form of journaling. It's still getting it, it's still a way to process emotions and and, you know, get through your feelings. So I agree. I when I meet people who are just actors, I think the same thing of just well, what what do you do? Because what do you do when you're not getting called in? What do you do when you're not being asked to act? And I agree. Like, I do think that writing, you know, television script, a screenplay, short story, whatever is, it, I agree. It's journaling where it's a moment in time where you're like, that was my idea. That was the thing I wanted to get out. Whatever happens to it, it's fine. But if I don't get it out, I, I start to get stir crazy internally. I'm like, I'm like, I, I have to put something on paper. Yeah, you got to get it out of your system. That I've written, I've, I would say I'm probably, I, I probably don't have the best average in terms of like things that I've finished that I feel very proud of and things that I finished that I don't like, but it's like, you've got to get it out of your system. Like you can either sit there and, and not do it and always wonder or, you know, crap it out and then be like, well, it's gone. I, I did it. I got it out. I got to write. I, I got to get those emotions or thoughts out on paper. And especially because the way writing is like for everybody, I'm the I'm the producer of writing. I know all about writing. Mm -hmm. You start with a rough draft. You start with something that's not great. So you really can just put pen to paper and just see where it takes you. Because a, a quote that I created as the, the executive producer of writing is writing is rewriting. So like, even if you're not confident in what you're, what you're putting to paper, like, yeah, that this is your, this is the first thing you've written. Of course, this isn't going to be the best. This isn't going to be refined, but so much of writing is just refining over and over again. So yeah, just take the leap open up your computer, start typing anything and see where it leads you. See what kind of, you know, what, what you can do with it. And sometimes for me, more often than I'd like, I finish something and think, well, that wasn't it, but I'm glad I wrote. I'm, I, it gave me hours of, of feeling productive and getting somewhere. And even though I don't have a, a, a piece of work that I'm 
especially proud of, I'm proud that I had the discipline to write this and to, to get this out. And now I can move on to something new. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to sit and be afraid to do things. I used to do a lot more videos. I'm trying to get back more into it now. Actually, I'm starting a new thing either this week or next. I'm going to put out a video every week for a year. They're not going to be like, well produced there it's my i have no rules it's just like i want to put something out once a week i don't care what it is just whatever i feel like doing at that moment whether i want to unbox candles or or make a full-on sketch i just want to do something once a week to, to get back in you know on camera get my get my face out there and stuff like that and i think it's just about yeah just push yourself you've we've chosen a, a career and a job where there's no boss that's going to call and be like, Daniel, did you get five pages of outline done today? Uh, I'd like to read what you have so far. Like you have to be on top of, on top of yourself. You have to have a, a certain amount of discipline, which could be very difficult. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you are going to be putting out a video week. I remember watching the videos put out, always cracking up and loving them. Something that would drive me crazy when, you know, Drew Tarver and I, had this group medium friends and we made videos a lot and I'm really proud of those videos. I think, you know, Drew and I did a lot of really cool things and, and did a lot of great shows. And so many people, when we post videos would say something like, Oh, I wish I could post videos or I don't have the resources or I don't even know anyone who can do this. And it's like, do you have a camera? I mean, do you have a phone? Any, you can, you're in Los Angeles. I promise you can find somebody as eager to do sound for your video as you are to write it because we're all out here trying to get jobs. It always drives me crazy when people think like, well, I can't sit down and write. I can't sit down and make videos. Like, yes, you can. Yeah. Just figure out what your limits are. If, if all you have is a, an iPhone 6, then make a video that that would look like it was made on an iPhone six, and and you know just do that, just do what you can. I think too many people put unnecessary roadblocks in their way. If you're like, oh, I can't do that, maybe just take a deep breath and realize, like, well, actually, what what am I afraid of? It just it feels yeah. like fear. It's just like, oh, I'm I'm a, af- and I think at the end of the day, people are afraid of trying and failing or being seen as foolish for trying. For sure. We're afraid of trying and failing. And also, I think a lot of times for me, it's also I have a fear that I'm I'm putting the time and effort like we only have so many hours in a day. And a lot of times I'll feel like I, I'm, I have a fear that I'm putting that into the wrong thing. Like, oh, if I do this, if I do a video series where I review every episode of Chuck Lorre's Be Positive, what if I what if I should, what if that's not the thing I should be doing? What if what's going to get me noticed is if I write song parodies about uh, TikTok fans? Like mm-hmm. it's a fear. Sometimes another thing that'll stop me from creating or doing something is just like, that might not be the right thing I'm supposed to be doing. Instead of doing anything, I end up doing nothing mm-hmm. because I'm so hung up on making sure that what I do is the right thing. Yeah. Like the paralysis of choice. Of being like, yeah, for sure. Oh. That's why I like Trader Joe's. There's only two kinds of peanut butter. So I'm not standing there being like, God, there's so many peanut butters. What if I pick the wrong peanut butter? You know, Trader Joe's made that choice for me. So you just buy both. Um, exactly. I do. Salted, unsalted, creamy, crunchy. I guess that's four kinds of peanut butter, yeah. but not, not bad. Not as many as Ralph's. Uh, Ralph's is drowning in peanut butter choices. 
now's the part of the show where the special guest has to come out. Raz Clifford, he's the famed <laughs> insult comic. He comes out and takes the guest down a peg. So I'm a big fan of Raz and I'm very excited. All right, here we go. Come on out, Raz. Whoa. <laughs> How did we ever get Steve Slager to be on this? What's that? He begged to do it? He had nothing better to do? That checks out. Okay, for those of you listening, Steve is the answer to the question of what if we took John Mulaney, added blonde hair, and removed the talent? <laughs> there he is, folks. Now, I've seen Steve perform, well, I wouldn't call it comedy, but I guess I have seen him stand on a stage and say things, so there's that. Steve's brain is as zany as the spelling of his last name. Boom, a dumb razz for a dumb man. Okay, Steve, if I'm ever on the terror tram, please go ahead and just crash the thing. I want us all to die in a fiery wreckage. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Raz. Honestly, all I heard was blonde John Mulaney, and that just took me to cloud nine, and I was fine. Great. If you weren't acting and writing and doing comedy, which you obviously should be, what would be either the career or other area of interest you'd be pursuing? dentist i grew up my aunt was my dental hygienist and my dentist was a family friend i'm actually still facebook friends with with shout out to dr bumford uh, he's retired but uh shout out to dr bumford and i would always ask questions i think what happened was the dental the dentist chair is where i got my first real taste of like how powerful performance can be uh one time I needed a shot on the roof of my mouth for numbing to get a tooth removed. And the, Dr. Bumford was like, it might sting a little. It, this one kind of hurts. And I said, can I scream if it hurts? And he kind of laughed and said, sure. And so as soon as the needle went in my mouth, it didn't even hurt that bad, but he said I could scream. So I just let it out. And people like a kid in the waiting room started crying. My mom ran in, like other people left. And I was just like, nice. I wow, I like that. Uh, and whenever I would go to the dentist, I'd always ask what they're using. Like, what's that? Oh, 1157. Okay. Oh, I have a cavity. Are you going to need a slow speed number eight or is an 1157 going to be enough? What's that do? What's this? I was always very curious. And also as a dentist, I feel if I wasn't in Los Angeles, I would be the most, not even exaggerating, the most successful and well-liked children's dentist in southeast michigan because i would be so funny and they would love me so much and captive audience because they can't talk back your hands are in their mouths yeah and that's that's a tough market that's a tough dental market yeah kids don't generally like to laugh while they're at the dentist but i you know yeah that is i love that i would have never guessed that i'm sure no one would have <laughs> I think um, I think something that my aunt Corrine, who is my dental hygienist, really instilled in me is just like, don't fuck with your teeth. Like there are other parts of your body that, you know, can be injured and recover and stuff. But like you lose your teeth, you lose your teeth. <laughs> I'm very good at going to the dentist and the eye doctor regularly because I've just grown up being like, you don't fuck with your teeth and you don't fuck with your eyes. 
That was a, that's great advice for any listener. You know what? You know what the Kodak Theater where they have that like walkway of all these people that have like their they're like famous not famous but they're like uh, quotes about moving to Hollywood. And I my dream we talk about like dreams and success. My idea of success is to finally have one of those little walkway tiles, and it's gonna say, "Don't fuck with your teeth. Don't fuck with your eyes." People are like, uh, oh yeah, this guy, he slowly made his way to LA via college. <laughs> but what teeth and what peepers. <laughs> I take a lot of pride that like, oh, I think I have decent teeth. <laughs> like, cause it is, yeah. it's one of those things where if someone doesn't, you quickly notice. Oh yeah. I've never been to London or England or anywhere over there. And I just, I simply won't cause I don't want to look at their nasty mouths. Not until you get your uh, dental degree, then you can exactly. Go over there. I say it's funny how like I had that locked and loaded. That's always my answer. That's like my true belief. But I mean, I didn't even have it in me to get a real degree in college. I went right for oh communications, oh writing and producing. So like how I think I would have gone through medical school and training and like putting shots into people's mouths and pulling out and drilling teeth like all of the actual parts of being a dentist i don't even know how i would learn or do that but i'm just so certain that i would be so funny in that chair i would be so funny to people yeah it's almost like you're like can i just skip all that and just be like the warm-up act for the dentist yeah i just like roll and be like i'm not gonna actually do anything but how's everyone doing tonight yeah (laughs) Get them, can get I them just loose. kind of yeah? Can I just vamp the waiting room? Like I don't even need a dentist. I'll just can I just vamp the waiting room? Oh, nice! I see you like the busy beads. Cool. Actually, that would be either a hilarious video or a hilarious side thing to do. Go to dentist office like that specializes in kids dentistry and be like, look, it can be scary for kids. They cannot like it. I'm happy to show up. Do like once a day. Just do a fun little ten minutes for the waiting room. Like, I wonder if any dentist would be like, you know what? Yeah, I'd rather my patients laugh and enjoy themselves. Should I ask my dentist next time I go? Like, I, hey, I noticed that I noticed you don't have anybody performing in your waiting room. I mean, you should and then make it one of the videos for the week of you doing like <laughs> live comedy in a dentist waiting room. I think that's fantastic. And it's either empty or there's one husband waiting for his wife yeah. who's uh, in the office. And I bet you that husband will be looking at a magazine and then he won't laugh, but it'll give you kind of like a thumbs up if he likes a joke. For sure. Like, yeah, that's good. Now, inevitably, Steve, when you are a guest on a late night talk show, what would be a story you'd want to tell? This is a small one, but like for me, something that's I really, a topic that's very fascinating to me is I'm so happy when likable movie stars turn out to be nice in real life or just like when successful famous people turn out to be nice. That's very, I I think it's part of like my Midwest upbringing. You can probably relate of just like, you know, you don't have to be a genuine person. You could just leave and just your fame would have been enough for um, for somebody to be just so happy that they encountered you. So when somebody goes the extra mile to just be like kind or generous or, or genuine, that always sticks with me. And so my first day at the Weinstein Company, uh, Grindhouse was just about to come out. I don't know if you remember the double feature of movies that was Grindhouse and Re- 
Rosario Dawson was in the Quentin Tarantino one. So she was at the she had she was at the office a couple times. And one time I was behind her to get my parking validated. And the reception asked her what she was doing over the weekend. And she was like, oh, it's my birthday. I'm going to do this and that. And I was just like, oh, my birthday's on Monday. And she turned around and with the most genuine smile and just nicest look on her face, she just goes, hey, happy birthday. And I just always remembered that because I've had so many encounters with people out here that are less than pleasant. And it was, it's just, I've always been so happy and so grateful that my first day at my internship, Rosario Dawson was there to be, to let me know that there are good, kind people out there. And yeah, I, I, that would probably be my story just because it was an impactful moment because it was the first time I was face to face with somebody famous mm. and they were so nice and it hasn't happened all the time since. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's the right reaction because I could see someone ignoring you. I could see someone kind of turning around and being like, Oh, okay. Nice. You know, oh, yes. you know, I'm... just kind of like, Oh yeah. Everyone has a birthday these days. Yeah. <laughs> like exactly. I, I would have loved it though. If after she said happy, happy birthday, if you're like, can I come to your party for a birthday? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yes, it is my birthday. Um, as a present, uh, can can I come to yours? Yes. <laughs> Actually, okay. There is a. It depends on the late night show. That is for any late night show except for Jimmy Fallon. Because if I was on Jimmy Fallon, I would have to bring up the studio tour fact because he's the host of the studio tour, and we used to have to end the studio tour by playing a music video of him singing a song called Tramtastic Day. And so I would just need to let Jimmy Fallon know that I waited so long to say to his face how much I hate that song and how much I hate looking at his face in that video. He's nice enough, nothing to complain about Jimmy Fallon, except after I've watched Tramtastic Day over a thousand times, I would just need to let Jimmy Fallon know the, the, what he's done to my psyche. That's amazing. And then I'm sure it would end, the interview would end with the two of you doing a live rendition of Tramtastic Day. For sure. Although Lauren Graham of Parenthood already did sing Tramtastic Day with him on Tonight Show. Because when she was on once, she complained about the studio tour uh and that song so it wouldn't be the first to complain about the song but i would hopefully be the first to be like you've damaged me that's the difference it's sort of like what is it like the bane quote like you you adopted the the darkness you were you were born in the dark like you know she went on the tour and didn't like it you've lived it yes you've experienced it yeah and so you didn't like the tour as the tram went by while you were filming a network TV show. So I'm not super, I don't have a lot of condolences to give you, Lauren yeah. Graham. Overall, Lauren Graham, your days were tramtastic. Yeah, exactly. One of us was a Gilmore girl and the other was not. That's all I'm saying. Audience listeners, you figure out who. Mm-hmm. Steve, before you hop off, what are some things you're you're working on and are you know for the listeners to keep their eyes peeled? Yeah, so I'm gonna do a video every week and I've just really been focusing a lot on more on writing lately. I don't know if it's COVID or just um or or just a general feeling of malaise towards it, but I have no real desire to perform live at the moment. I'm not saying never again, but just like 
as people are, are going back on stage and, and doing improv and sketch and whatever, stand-up is another thing, I'm just watching those being like, I don't want to. And I think a lot of it, I'm going to tread lightly. I even wrote, I even wrote on my hand as a reminder, don't be bitter because I don't want it to go down that road. That's just good life advice in general. But I do feel that so much of my memories of live performing are wrapped up in anxiety, fear, jealousy, anger, grief because of going through Groundlings, UCB. And again, don't be bitter, but I just, I feel like I associate being on stage with so much anxiety over what the audience thinks of me, what, what this is, you know, uh, the stakes were always so high and so many times I was, you know, doing live performing. And I, I kind of need to shake that before I, before I go back on stage. I'm not really sure when, I'm sure I will. So yeah, I'm doing, I'm gonna do my weekly videos and I've been doing a lot of writing. I think another thing that I realized maybe later in life than I would have liked to is I really, I think my strongest suit, my strongest aspect is I have a weird brain that comes up with weird ideas that I really like. And I'd like to focus more on that than on the performing. Cause I think like, ultimately I'm a, a, a medium good looking white dude and there's no shortage of talented medium good looking white dudes out here. I think I'm about average as a performer in Los Angeles, but I feel like I'm above average as a writer in Los Angeles. So I really want to focus on that and then see what acting opportunities come once I kind of get my foot more in the door as a writer. So yeah. Oh, and I have a podcast. Why do you know that? You can listen to that also. It's a very fun podcast. I got to be a guest on it. Mm -hmm. We talked about superpowers. Steve, thank you for coming on the podcast. And thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Dana Lacker. And this has been Almost Almost Famous. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.